The Drive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that bounces through the world of cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we take a look at the latest news stories with David Campbell, including Toyota and Holden factories to close. We have a lovely history piece on how transport shaped Sydney from the very beginning, including the fact that the first fleet ships could not make it all the way up Parramatta River. And in our discussion session, we take a chucklesome look at some quirky news stories, including a Lake Macquarie man tackling the Nullarbor in a 1929 Austin 7. Have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. By the end of October, the doors will have closed on the Australian car manufacturing industry forever. After almost a century of car making. Recently, Toyota closed its Camry manufacturing plant in Victoria, making 2,500 staff redundant. And Holden will close its Adelaide plant on the 20th of October, placing nearly 1,000 people out of work. Ford closed its Australian car making facilities last year and Mitsubishi closed in 2004. Once you include the businesses that supplied parts and services to Australia's car manufacturers, over 50,000 people will be affected. Since shutting down its Australian operations last year, Ford and the government have spent millions of dollars on retraining workers. But only half of them have been able to find new jobs. Only about a third of Mitsubishi workers that lost their jobs in 2004 have been able to find full-time equivalent work. We now import more cars from Thailand than any other country. Since Australia agreed to lift the import tariff on cars from Thailand in 2005, we have imported over 2 million vehicles from our Asia-Pacific neighbour. From familiar brands such as Ford, Holden, Toyota, but also Honda, Nissan, Mitsubishi, Mazda and others. Saudi Arabia recently announced that it will undo a long-standing ban that has prevented women from driving cars. Women will be allowed to drive cars beginning in June 2018. That gives the ultra-conservative Middle Eastern country nearly a year to set up driver's licensing for women and to train police officers on how to interact with the opposite gender. Dozens of Saudi women grabbed international headlines in 2011 when they took the wheel in several cities. One protester was arrested and detained for a day after she posted a video online that showed her driving a car and another woman was sentenced to 10 lashings. Ultimately, the king pardoned them, but they signed statements saying that they would not drive again. Now it appears those protesters will be finally able to drive legally. The JD Power Australia Sales Satisfaction Index study has recently been released. The study, which is limited to mass-market vehicles as opposed to prestige cars, examines six factors that contribute to overall customer satisfaction with the new vehicle purchase experience. In order of importance, they are salesperson, the deal, delivery timing, delivery process, the dealer facilities, and sales initiation. Eleven brands were evaluated and were scored out of a possible 1,000 points. 
Hyundai recorded the highest level of customer satisfaction with 827 points, followed by Kia, Holden, Ford and Toyota. Of the 11 brands, Volkswagen recorded the lowest rating with 791 points, slightly ahead of Nissan. The study also found that of the highly satisfied buyer group, 84% said that they would definitely stay loyal to their chosen brand, and 90% would recommend that brand to others. By contrast, just 33% of highly dissatisfied buyers would buy the brand again and recommend it to others. In May, China's Xinjiang Geely Holding Group agreed to purchase 51% of Lotus from Lotus' parent company, Proton. The transaction has now been completed. The Geely automaker also owns the Volvo brand, as well as a number of Chinese brands. The deal should prove a boon for Lotus. Given Geely's successful hands-off approach with Volvo, this could be a major turning point for Lotus, which for decades has suffered from a shortage of development funds. Already on the drawing board is an SUV as well as a long overdue US legal replacement for the Elise and Exige sports cars. There's also the possibility of some Lotus models such as the upcoming SUV being produced in China. The former head of engine development at the Volkswagen Group has reportedly been arrested as part of investigations into the Dieselgate emissions cheating scandal. Wolfgang Hatz was arrested earlier this week by prosecutors in Munich, who are investigating the affair on behalf of the German government. Hatz is not the first Volkswagen Group employee arrested over Dieselgate, but he is the most senior to date. The former engine boss is said to be a close friend and confidant of Martin Winterkorn, the Group's former CEO. Canada is set to introduce legislation requiring manufacturers to ensure that car taillights illuminate automatically in the evening. The new regulations are a response to so-called phantom cars, in which a driver is unaware that the taillights aren't illuminated at night. Canada mandated daytime running lights in 1989, and crash data supports the fact that they improve road safety. While daytime running lamps are not mandatory in many countries, Many brands include this feature for safety reasons. Manufacturers will have until September of 2020 to fit vehicles with automatic taillights. And that has been the news. When Governor Phillips started European settlement in Sydney, he thought about more than just a penal colony. He saw an opportunity to build a great city. Part of his vision was wide main thoroughfares and elegant buildings. Later, Governor Macquarie also had grand visions including large boulevards as a key element of a boundless city. Bob Meyer is the head of planning for Cox Architecture and is an avid historian of planning and its effects on our lives. He notes that Governor Phillips' Navy experience was more than just how to sail ships. Philip was um, very worldly. He had travelled all over the world because he was lent to the Portuguese Navy by the British Navy and had sailed to ports like Rio de Janeiro and those areas. He knew all these harbours and cities. And again, you know, when he sailed into uh, Port Jackson, he could say that this is the finest harbour he's ever seen. And he had seen a lot of harbours in the world. The powers that be back in England did not share that vision. 
the government in uh, in England thought this was a convict settlement. Why waste money on it and have wide streets and what have you? Because the early planners, or the people interested in planning and who had been a bit worldly who came here, always spouted about Paris. Because Paris was, you know, Louis the Fourteenth, I think it was, and Houseman, the, his uh, major prefect, just bulldozed great boulevards throughout the working class suburbs of uh, Paris and made it what we know it as today. But again, the people in Whitehall were not that impressed with a convict settlement being of that nature. Parramatta could have become really the city centre, but there was a transport problem to it, wasn't there? There was a big problem. The, the, uh, the whole idea was to try and move to Parramatta because that's where the food was produced. But the problem was that the First Fleet could not get up the river because it was, uh, at a certain point, the keels of the First Fleet hit the bottom of the river. And there's an old Navy term called kissing point. That was the kissing point where the keel hit. Therefore, we all know kissing point road when we go over that, we'll know where the keels hit. So they couldn't, they couldn't settle in Parramatta. They would have liked to have. They would have liked to have had Parliament House there, but they had to turn back and um, settle in Sydney. It's interesting that the first fleet boats, of course, sailed across the ocean, but then had to be used within a local sense in Sydney. Exactly. And because they couldn't uh, use the boats there, they had to use the long boats, which were like the lifeboats of the First Fleet. So they had to row them up the river, up the rivers, and it took them quite a few hours to get from Sydney to Parramatta or up to Windsor. But at one stage, in about 1830s or so, there were more people living in those outer western areas, Windsor, Richmond, Parramatta, than there were in the, in the inner parts of Sydney. And there were tables of that. I think 1850 or so, where the numbers were counted. There's John, later Sir John Sulman, yes. whom we have an art prize, and we also have an architecture prize as well. That They were principal people who were really advocating for a high ideal. Very much so, because uh, they were educated in, in England uh, in the town planning profession which really started, as I said before, around Liverpool in about before the First World War, Liverpool University, paid for by the Lever Brothers because um, Lever Brothers built one of the first garden suburbs called Port Sunlight, just outside of Liverpool. And that was sort of the beginning of developing suburbs as garden suburbs. Garden because they were low density, they were detached houses, what we know as suburbia, really. And, uh, and then the Cadbury people built uh, Bourneville near Birmingham, and so on and so forth. And they, they funded a lot of the uh, town planning courses. Lever Brothers funded the first uh, town planning course in Liverpool. And Sir Patrick Abercrombie became the professor, one of the most famous town planners. But Sulman would have studied with him and uh, luckily we had quite a few of these people from the Liverpool School come to Australia. Gordon Stevenson in, uh, in Perth and, and 
and so on. There were a few around. But Sulman was very influential. He gave a lot of, uh, he was a major witness at the Royal Commission. And he, uh, he was the voice of modern town planning, which brought it to Sydney. Businesses, well, some businesses seem to have a very enlightened view that they saw that that's a uh, euthenics approach, yes. that, that the welfare of their workers was important to them and to their businesses. Exactly. exactly. And that really started in England, uh, very much so. And whether it was a religious thing or whether it was a philosophical thing, uh, I think a bit of all of those. Quaker, yes, and all that. And that would have translated into the United States as well as Australia and other areas. So English planners were quite influential in the United States as well, certainly Canada and Australia. And, and as you say, Sulman was the main voice at the time. Bob's work is more than just an historical nicety. It's critical that we review history, not just to arrogantly judge people on whether we think they were right or wrong, but to understand the causes and effects, the motivations and experiences of people that ultimately create the cities we live in, whether we like it or not. We will have more reflections from Bob's extended interview, including making a video to cover what has been some wonderful reflections of how and why a great city like Sydney developed the way it did. You're listening to Overdrive. The Ford Transit commercial van, as we know it generally now, was first produced in 1965, although the name had been used before, I believe. And it was initially sold in 65 through Western Europe and Australia. In fact, it didn't make it to the North American market until 2013. The first one in the UK sold for £560. It was probably pounds in Australia there too, of course. Transits broke new ground in many ways. The vans before that had a bland image of the workhorse, sturdy, steady and slow. Ford sold the new Transit not only on its practical capabilities, but on its performance. They had pictures in their ads from the test grounds on dirt roads zooming about. Severe understeer, I seem to remember. In that way, the Ford Transit became the getaway car of choice for British crime dramas. Errol and I have been fanging around in one, and Errol joins me on the line. Errol, it was a subtle car, perhaps not. <laughs> no, not the one we got. Uh, now with six-speed auto. In letters you could see from a mile away, was plastered over the side. <laughs> yes, I, I told Ford that I wanted to be surreptitious and quiet and that, but I didn't have any illegal intent. I don't think they believed me. If you, you go to the website, we'll have some pictures. Uh, Errol, uh, just very briefly, uh, power. What's what's it got under diesel engine? What's it got? Uh, well, you get a two-litre diesel with 96 kilowatts, uh, which which may not sound like a lot, but you've got 385 newton metres of torque. So, um, and you can get that through a six-speed auto or a six-speed manual. Pulls about 6.6 .6 litres per 100 on the on the combined cycle in the fuel economy department. They've actually got a bit better there. If you go back to 2014, it was around 7.1, 7.3, mm. depending if you had to short a long wheelbase. Uh, pretty wide, uh, nearly 1.4 metres between the wheel arches. Uh, and uh, I think 
if you uh, get a bit higher above the wheel arches, it's nearly 1.8 metres. Uh, there was a lot of space in the back. What, what about getting to it? Was it practical, Errol? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, it was um, easy to sort of get in and drive and left-hand blinkers, uh, European style, but um, otherwise it's a get-in-and-go car. The, the, only, the thing that, um, that kind of annoyed me, though, was the AC controls and the audio controls are sort of... It, they're technically in the centre of the dash, but the thing is so wide that you actually have to reach over to get mm. to them. <laughs> the, the space in the cabin can sound good, but you saw my problem of when I went to lean on the right door sill, uh, I fell over because I, I missed the sill altogether. It was further out than I was expecting. Mm. You're not obviously not big enough, David. Ah. Yes, but, but the, um, the one we had had a three seats across the front um so um you could carry certainly two adults and a kid easily and um three adults at a pinch now what that does is of course it takes away room between the two normal front seats for things like trays and that let's, let's think about this as a working vehicle errol when you got in the car uh, in the van how did you find things uh, set out for a whole range of things including how did you charge your phone it took us. Uh, I think we we only found that by accident. The uh, the USB and the auxiliary sockets and things are, are hidden away in a compartment on top of the dash, in front of the steering wheel, so uh, not sort of where you expect them to be anywhere obvious. So I think the uh, the the intent of that is that you get in and you shove your phone in that little compartment and uh, let it do do its Bluetooth thing and off you go. It did have a charging point uh, on the dash or down a bit in the middle, mm. uh, which is like a cigarette lighter. But that, of course, was there to confuse you. Yes. So that you thought, oh, well, it hasn't got a USB plug. Yes, that, that, was, that was the decoy charging point. Yes. The fact that now you have big airbag uh, places for airbags in front of the passenger means that the glove box is down low and not easily usable. The old... Citroen Berlingos used to have a glove box that you could fold down and use as a desk. Mm. You know, it, it had sort of room for writing and perhaps even to hold a cup of coffee while you worked on things. This van just didn't seem to have a lot in it for, you know, putting the clipboard with your invoices on or things like that. Mm. Yeah, you could fold down the, the, the back of the centre seat and that gave you a little bit of a, a work area with a couple of cup holders. Um, but it's certainly not as not as much as we've seen in, in other, other vehicles like you've mentioned. Daryl, lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time. No worries, David. You're listening to Overdrive. And let's talk about the more unusual, not necessarily weird, but ones that challenge our very thoughts of the past and how we might relive them, albeit in a sanitised sense, into the future. To do this, I'm joined on the line with my good friend Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. Errol, if you had something that looked like an old record player, you put records on it or something that looks like it, but underneath it was all digital and actually played songs from iTunes, <laughs> would that do... Would that be good enough? If you had something that looked like a wood fire for cooking pizzas, but inside was really an electric element, and you could even get it to taste good by adding an authentic char-grilled spice or something, <laughs> would you do it? I refer, of course, to the fact that they are now looking at making, perhaps just as a show car, but at least doing it at least once, an E-Type Jaguar with an electric 
engine. Errol, is the world coming to an end? I think it would be for the traditionalists who think it's sacrilege to get a, a classic E-type Jag and take out the internal combustion engine. <laughs> not to mention the fuel tank and everything else. It goes back to the very core thing of why do you want an old car like that, for the, the mechanical feel or for just the image? Sorry, you were going to say, Errol? Yeah, well, I think you're right. If, if it's just purely the image, then um, maybe this is acceptable. And, and the mechanics that did this claim that they haven't modified you know, the chassis of the car. So you could still put the, an original engine and, and drivetrain back into it if you wanted to. They haven't, you know gutted the you know the engine mounts or anything like that so if you get sort of an epiphany that you've done the wrong thing you've forsaken your religion you have to go back to the authentic so you can do it it's a little bit like removing tattoos <laughs> it's a bit of regret <laughs> <laughs> uh, apparently there is a serious aim for this which is that they're sort of planning for the future that there are already cities planning to ban internal combustion vehicles so um this is they're sort of you know testing the waters of being able to electrify classic vehicles to meet future enforcement (sighs) the way they're doing this they're exploring the market apparently for the electric conversion of those classic cars and the price tag is about half a million dollars for the conversion and that doesn't include the car okay but i guess if you can afford a classic e-type jag which in good condition is worth a fortune anyway you can probably manage that kind of cost for the conversion given that there are many rules that will stop you using a polluting car in many situations in the future that whole idea of touring the streets in an old car which is still in a modern sense, environmentally acceptable, I guess I understand. The other thing is uh, the electric motor has 220 kilowatts, 295 horsepower, uh, which is more than the first E-Type Jaguar, which only had 198 kilowatts, 265. So it's got a bit more grunt than the original and it actually weighs a bit less. So it's sort of doubly improved in the performance department. But you've still got the stock suspension and the stock suspension from the, the 60s was, well... It speaks for itself, really. Basic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I think you still have the narrow tyres, too. Mm. So you're putting out a fair amount of horsepower yeah. and being an electric motor at zero revs from start-off, you'd certainly be able to smoke the tyres. Yes. And they claim that they've kept the balance of the vehicle. So the drivetrain has similar weight distribution to the original drivetrain. So you don't lose the, the feel of it. I wonder, though, they, they don't mention if have they kept the sound. So have they added a bunch of speakers and some, yes. you know, some electronics to fake the beautiful sound of that, that old motor? Yes, absolutely right, Errol. And, of course, the electric motor doesn't need a gearbox. No. In fact, they removed the gearbox. The motor goes where the gearbox was. Ah, that's how they keep the balance. Mm. Mm. So the battery's up the front where the engine was, and the yeah. motor is where the gearbox was the issue here is also the fact that just don't have any of the maintenance of the Mm. old cars you you don't have to put the bonnet up beside the road and try and tune triple su carburetors but it's half the fun isn't it david well keeping those old things running (laughs) 
and being able to my, tinker. My brother-in-law has a couple of old Jaguars, including not that old, an XJS convertible. So we're talking about the 80s. And he let me drive it the other day down to Phillip Island, and I opened the boot to put my bag in, and there was a set of tools already there. Probably a spare carby, just in case. <laughs> fan belt, things like that. Yeah, a bunch of spark plugs. (laughs) The thing I love about these old cars, David, and and this car was made before I was born, is that you open the bonnet and basically the only cables are the spark plug leads. (laughs) That's the extent of the electronics. (laughs) Well, old Jaguars uh, had Lucas electronics didn't they was it lucas was that part of the jaguar as well i'm not that uh, technically minded but given that uh, i think doug mulray so you know lucas prince of darkness was his uh, notion because they kept failing and the lights would fail in this conversion they replaced the headlights with leds and things like that which i i think was a that's a bit of that's a going a bit far i think you'll be able to see now yes what what? (laughs) that takes away Takes away the challenge, doesn't it? Yeah, driving down a country road, squinting to try and pick out shapes. That yeah. was a challenge. Yeah, and you take a torch with you just to sort of give a bit more light. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm struggling, Errol. I've, I've got to be honest with you. I'm totally struggling with this concept. Of course, if you want to then suffer the ultimate utter derision, you would go to one of those classic car events with your electric E-Type. Yeah, yeah. And you'd hope that fake exhaust note keeps you under the radar. (laughs) I think you'd get expelled, David, if you you did. The Goodwood Revival. (laughs) I read the first article I ever read by one of the great motoring writers of Australia who was Bill Tucky but wrote under his own name for road tests and such, but he had a humorous name, the Romsey Quince, that he wrote under. And I remember the first article I wrote. I spoke then to um, Robinson, uh, who, uh, who, you know, a great writer, when Bill Tucky died, and I said, I remember that, and he remembered the article too. The opening line, the opening words of this article was, for God's sake, don't rev it. And it was a story of going to an MG Car Club historic meeting in a replica MG TC with a Volkswagen engine. Oh, dear. And so his point was that if you were near any historically motivated MG enthusiast and you revved it and it sounded like the chaff cutter that was a Volkswagen engine – you were lucky to get out with your life. Yes, yes. I don't blame them, really. Horizontally opposed motors should not touch a British vehicle. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, the sound would give it away. Errol, always lovely to talk to you. Uh, I thank you very much for your time. No worries, David. See you. Errol Smith, and we were talking some unusual stories to do with motoring, transport, touring, and everything to do with getting about. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, David Campbell, Bob Meyer, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. 
You can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.